Amen. When the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai, the third commandment says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And one of the ways the Lord's name could be taken in vain is if someone made a promise, a swearing an oath, some kind of a vow unto the Lord to do something and didn't do it. This would be to invoke the name of the Lord and not give proper weight and gravity to it. It would be to treat the name of Yahweh lightly. And maybe someone would do that in the ancient world because they needed to get out of a situation or they needed somebody to just trust them, take their word for it. And so they said, I swear to God, right? Take an oath, right? Make this vow. And and yet, inwardly, they had no intention of actually speaking truthfully. And so speaking with vow or promissory language could be a way of someone getting others around them to believe what they're saying while the Lord's name would be taken in vain as the Lord knows the hearts of those speakers. A vow is a promise to the Lord. And in the Old and New Testaments, you do see mention of taking our words with a kind of weight that our promises, our vows are taken seriously. Um, In Exodus 20, an application of that third commandment would be making a promise or a vow to the Lord and making sure we make good on that promise or oath. Now, why would we um, consider vows at this point in the book of Numbers? Where is this coming from? Is this not an example in Numbers of how out of the blue this chapter seems? I've tried to show along the way that there's a real reasonableness in the placement of the subjects that are addressed. And I want to offer two considerations for why we have uh, dealt with now a chapter on vows in Numbers 30. First of all, the last section of Numbers was a bunch of offerings throughout the year of Israel's calendar, right? We thought about all those many offerings, the weekly ones, uh, or the daily ones, the weekly ones, the monthly ones, the annual ones. It was a barrage of offerings, seven annual offerings besides the weekly, monthly, and daily ones. Now, there is this comment, though, in Numbers 29. In Numbers 29, 39, near the very end of our chapter last week, it says, These you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts in addition to your vow offerings. You see that there near the end of the section? In addition to your vow offerings and your free will offerings for your burnt offerings, your grain offerings. One of the things someone could do is voluntarily vow unto the Lord. And the completion of that vow would be accompanied by a sacrifice. So here we have an explanatory placement then for this chapter. We have looked at a number of the offerings, right, in Israel's calendar year. And the kinds of offerings that were given that were required. This would be in addition to any voluntary vows or offerings. And vows are brought up in our passage tonight. Uh, so they seem to uh, certainly be near the end of chapter 39, verse uh, Chapter 29, 39, invoke there your vow offerings. And now vows given a whole chapter. One other consideration. I told you there were two. That's consideration number one, a few verses before our chapter. The second consideration is a vow Israel made. Israel made a vow in Numbers 21. And they were facing a Canaanite king called Arad, who lived in the Negev desert south of the Promised Land. And they heard that Israel had been coming by and he fought against Israel. And in verse 2, 
Israel vowed a vow. Israel vowed a vow to the Lord. And they said, if you'll indeed give us this people into my hand, I'll devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel, gave over the Canaanites. They devoted their cities to destruction. The Israelites are going to be a people who are heading into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. And even though there's a whole book of Deuteronomy before Joshua, years-wise, we're not dealing with any big passage of time. It's the 40th year of Israel's wandering. The time has now drawn very near for their crossing over. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses, this looming figure from Exodus forward, Moses is going to die. And Israel is going to have conquest of the land, subdue Israel's enemies, and they will find themselves once again needing to overcome the Canaanite forces and keep their promises and commitments to the Lord. In other words, in chapter 30, we're dealing with something individuals and Israel as a nation must reckon with. What have we committed before the Lord? And will we be a people who are known for our word? Now, obviously, we're not the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We're not under the Old Covenant. A chapter like this, though, reinforces the seriousness that in the Old and New Testaments is not just about someone under certain covenants at certain periods in Israel's history, but the larger issue of having a kind of character and mouth that your words are what you make good on. That when you make promises or vows, you take it seriously. So this is why we're talking about vows at this point in Numbers and how it prepares the people for what's to come. In fact, these sections of the book uh, that lead all the way to chapter 36 are forward-looking to the land. And they are being prepared as a people who will go, subdue Israel's enemies, and for the name of God, keep their promises before Him. There is a focus... On this chap- in this chapter, on the vows that females make. Now, I've tried to put a big picture outline. This is quite detailed. It doesn't have to be this detailed, but I wanted to be thorough so that you could see how um, integral the chapter uh, has interwoven what women make as vows. There is a statement where men make vows in verses 1 and 2, and that's it. Verses 1 and 2. Uh, The rest of the chapter deals with a variety of situations that a woman who has made a vow might find herself in. This This is a chapter that would fall under the category case law. A case law, like other parts of Leviticus and parts of Exodus, these are not like... um, commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. They're more like scenarios that are envisioned. Let's say you're in this situation, what do you do? Let's say this happens, if that does, what do you do? And those are cases, so case by case, certain laws address those situations. Chapter 30 is a series of laws that are case laws. Verses 3 to 5 focus on if a woman makes a vow while living in her father's house. She's unmarried. She's living as a young person in her home. And then verses 6 to 8, if she makes a vow that crosses over into married life. So it's before marriage, but now she is married. What now? And then in in verse 9, if a woman makes a vow and she does so as a widow or as a divorcee, what does that mean? And then verses 10 through 11, if she makes a vow while married and her husband says nothing about it. And then if a woman makes a vow while married... And her husband disapproves. And then there's this policy summary in verses 13 and 14 about establishing or nullifying vows. 
But one more case. If a woman makes a vow while married and her husband says nothing until later. <laughs> so there's a whole series of hypothetical scenarios that the, that a woman might find herself in. How can this instruct her? Okay, so one of the least studied chapters in the book of Numbers. But this is the kind of chapter you come to when you're going through a book. So, you know, I'm doing this to myself. So here we are in Numbers chapter 30, and I'm, you know, I'm taking you along for the ride. And then in Numbers 30 verses 1 and 2, we see, if a man makes a vow, here's what is said. The word of the Lord, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel. And he said, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, why would someone make a vow? In the Old Testament, you can see scenarios where someone would make a vow Sometimes in distress, Lord, if you will deliver me, I will do this. I promise to do this. I will never do this. You can see vows that will sometimes arise out of desperation. Now, sometimes you find vows like the Nazarite vow or others that are voluntary and for a period of time. Uh, Lord, for a particular set of days during the month, I will fast from food. And that is my vow. And at the end of that, I will resume normal activity. Or I will take a, a vow of uh, a prayerful devotion in the courts of the tabernacle for, you know, Fridays uh, during the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover and Tabernacles. At each of these feasts, you will find me at prayer at this location. Somebody might, in other words, have a variety of of specifics of how a vow would look. So a vow could be taken in a moment of crisis. A vow could be voluntary and not prompted by any distress or desperation. There are different cases. But what chapter 30 gives you are occasions where a vow might not need to be kept. This is what's intriguing. You would, you would think on the face of it here, if you make a vow or a promise to the Lord, that no matter what situation you find yourself in, that vow is going to be kept no matter what. But in chapter 30, there are going to be a series of exceptions where either a daughter or a wife is released from her vow in certain circumstances. So this, this uh, prompts us to, to think about the practicalities of what this chapter brings to us. So in verse 2, Vowing a vow is explained as swearing an oath to bind himself by a pledge. And a vow is to be understood as making a promise before the Lord and also for the Lord and in the name of the Lord. This is a pledge and he is not to break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. This circumstance means, well, this man, maybe he's a husband. Maybe this man is a father. Maybe he's both. But no exceptions are given in any of this chapter for a man to uh, be removed or, or have his vow nullified from this pledge. And that may be the case because he would be a leader either as, in the home as the father or in the family as the husband and bears an even greater responsibility with his words to where if certain circumstances come to pass, like his daughter leaves the home, um, or makes a vow in the home, or he gets married, then there are certain uh, life circumstances that might mean a vow of a daughter or, or a, a new wife should be nullified. Let's consider them. Let's not keep it abstract. In verses 3 through 5, 
This is about if a woman makes a vow while living in her father's house. We are told this in verse 3. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth. Okay, so what's the setting there? You've got a young lady. She's growing up under her dad's authority. And her father, in verse 4, hears of her vow and her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her. Then all her vows shall stand. And every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. Verse 5, but if her father opposes her on the day he hears of it, the vow that is, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. All right, so we're dealing with a situation where a young lady is treated as a moral agent. This is actually very important in the community and life of Israel. Her statements carry weight. Even a young lady in the house, which means this is different than normal ancient Near Eastern contexts. Here you have the Israelite family. Here you have a young daughter in a household. But let's suppose her vow was unwise. Her father hears about it. Maybe she vowed an oath to do something that the father realizes, I know she means well, this is not wise. Or she makes a vow that might implicate the family. Like let's say she said something wild and hypothetical that, Lord, if you will do this, then uh, I will vow my father's property and harvest to this percentage. And, And the father learns of this. And he says, dear daughter, I know that your words before the Lord meant well, but having heard your vow, we render it null and void. So this is not necessary to keep. Now, uh, what verse 5 envisions is that he opposes what she has said. That's not because the father doesn't take vows seriously. It must imply, it must imply the father understands something about the promise that isn't good. And that keeping the vow would not be wise. I think this is assuming a godly father and a godly husband that is exercising discretion within the household and discernment so that we see here's a scenario. You made this promise. It should not be kept. But what if he hears about it and he doesn't say anything? He's like, eh. In verses four, in verse four, if the father hears and says nothing to her about it, which means he doesn't oppose it, then all her vows shall stand. And every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. That implies he can't come back a week later and say, well, you know, after giving this some thought, I know I said to you this isn't a big deal, let your vows stand. I've decided I'm going to nullify it. He doesn't get to do that. He doesn't get to do that. There is a a single opportunity that arises for him to deal with the vow in a discretionary way. And once he either opposes it or affirms it, that decision stands. That's verses 3 and 5, through 5, and it envisions a young woman living in her father's house and how he will have some kind of influence over what she keeps and doesn't keep. And that is likely because of his particular role and invested authority as her father in the home. And it tells us at the end of verse 5, the Lord 
pardons this. In other words, the Lord does not consider that this girl is in rebellion against him, say. Like if she said, Dad, if you nullify this, if you inhibit me keeping this vow, I will not have a heart that is right before God. This tells us the daughter need not fear that. Need not fear that. Here's another scenario. Verses 6 through 8. If a woman makes a vow before getting married. In verse 6. If she marries a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand. So we're already noticing there a little bit of a pattern, right? There's this opportunity to speak to the issue. And if he doesn't, then the lack of opposition is taken as affirmation of the vow. And then in verse 8, but... If on the day her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself and the Lord will forgive her. Again, this is not something held against the woman, but instead a category of vows that is not going to be in the best interest of the household. Let's imagine what this could be. Let's say that um, she made a vow that she would not travel any distances beyond 50 miles around uh, their town for the next 20 years. Or, you know, something that would just seem quite extreme. And the husband thinks, well, with, with work and travel, with, uh, I don't know if they're just vacationing 50 miles away from home and beyond. But he might think, having heard this vow, we're not going to keep this vow. That, that was fine before you were married, but now that you are married, this is not a vow to keep. What if before marriage, he comes to find out that she's made a vow of sexual abstinence for five years? And he thinks to himself, well, we're going to be married, and to consummation of the marriage would be expected and reasonable. Therefore, the vow she has recently made will not stand. And so you could think of scenarios where a husband who fears the Lord and a new wife who fears the Lord would recognize here is a vow or a promise that need not stand. The husband hears about it. He opposes it. It is nullified. The Lord does not hold it against her. Okay, then then in verse nine, there, there we go. Verse nine. What if a woman makes a vow? She's not in her father's house, nor is she married in verse nine. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. Now, that doesn't mean in a negative way, stand against her, as in uh, some negative sense as opposition. It means it's the vow in front of her. It is what she is accountable to. Notice how the Old Testament treats the women of Israel as moral agents, valuing their decisions and promises. And here, the circumstances aren't as complicated as if she lived under the authority of her father or she was married now in covenant with a husband. Here, she is a widow or she is divorced. But either way, she is treated here as someone whose words must be made good on. The vow shall stand. And then in verses 10 through 11, what if she makes a vow while married and her husband says nothing? So here the marriage has happened. This is a now a post-marriage decision. She's going to make a promise and as a married person makes this vow. In verses 10 and 11, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her. Then all her vows shall stand. 
and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. The, the pattern of speech we're noticing is he has the opportunity to weigh in on what she has promised. Because the wife's vow doesn't just implicate her. There's a household. There's a covenant. There's a marriage. And so the decision she makes and the uh, response that he has and the effect on that vow, it recognizes the importance of the union they have together, you see. And then in verses 10 and 11, we're recognizing that if she's married, makes a vow, and her husband doesn't oppose it, it stands. I'll tell you something that this also does in protecting women in Israel. It did not give the husband some perpetual veto power and authority that if he thought, well, I know she made this promise before the Lord. And then a month later, you know, maybe he's upset at her about something. And he's like, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to nullify your vow. How do you like that? I mean, he just doesn't get to do that. He doesn't get to do that. There's not, this isn't something he wields over her in some sort of authoritarian way. This chapter, in a surprising way, actually elevates in the ancient Near East the, the women of the Israelite community. Something that in the larger ancient Near Eastern culture would have really stood out as distinct. So sometimes a modern reader might come to Numbers 30. And they might think this is quite strange that someone who is a woman, whether she's a daughter or a wife, could have her promise nullified. But that's not the right approach to think about this. Instead, looking at how this chapter works in the context of the initial readers, this raises up the voice and commitments of the women in Israel's community. Something very unusual in the ancient Near East. And very good, I might add. Then verse 12. What if she makes a vow while married and her husband disapproves? So in verses uh, 10 and 11, he doesn't say anything. But what if he does? Verse 12. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will forgive her. Now let's think of a hypothetical scenario. Here they're married and then he comes to say, well, uh, have we thought about uh, like starting a family? Let's think about the logistics. Let's think about uh, the timeline. Maybe we can start having children. And she says, well, you know something I did last week. I made a vow to the Lord that we are not going to have children uh, for three years. And so he hears about this. And for the first time, this is not something that she would be required to keep. In other words, before the Lord, he could say, we, we should not think about it that way. Even if that was a rash commitment, let's say she felt desperate and distressed, makes this vow to the Lord of single-mindedness in this particular way, the husband uh, can, uh, can oppose this. And then shall not stand, and the Lord will not hold it against them. What I'm wanting you to notice is, in these first 12 verses, we've seen how making vows is a serious thing, but there can be some exceptions chapter 30 recognizes. And the, the exceptions would be if someone has spoken in a way that when heard by the father or husband, discretion would dictate that's not a wise promise to have made. Now, sometimes the Bible will give us examples of unwise promises. Maybe you or your mind could think of Jephthah in uh, the book of Judges, where he promises that whatever comes out of that door, he's going to offer to the Lord. And lo and behold, his daughter comes out. And here Jephthah has made this foolish vow. Indeed, in the Old and New Testaments, people might speak rashly, thoughtlessly, um, and spontaneously out of distress or for other reasons. A policy works like this in verses 13 and 14. Any vow... 
and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish, that means he doesn't oppose it, or her husband may make void. Now in verse 13, to afflict herself must mean she could have a vow that might mean some kind of challenge or difficulty, especially with regard to fasting. This could be uh, afflicting herself, the language used during feast times, such as uh, when the Day of Atonement was coming up um, after the Feast of Trumpets. You could have people who would commit to a period of abstaining from certain foods. And fasting might be an example of afflicting, submitting yourself for a period of time to some kind of hard thing. And um, if she makes this vow, her husband may affirm it, he may make it void. In verse 14, if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He's established them because he said nothing to her on the day he heard of them. Once again, meaning he must act and speak in a timely way with discretion and wisdom and not later use an opportunity to nullify something to hold over her. In verses 13 and 14, that's a a summary of this policy. Now, the last case is in verse 15. This is if a woman makes a vow while married and her husband says nothing until later. I'm telling you, they're trying to be really thorough in this chapter. (laughs) So this detailed outline is trying to prove this to you. And in verse 15, but if he makes them null and void, those would be her promises, her vows. If he makes them null and void after he's heard of them, that means there's a passing of time. So this is, he's heard of them, he didn't do anything, and now after that time, He makes them null and void. Then he shall bear her iniquity. Now, we didn't expect that result in earlier passages, in earlier parts of this chapter. We recognize the Lord doesn't hold against her with language that the Lord will forgive her. He pardons this. This isn't to be seen as rebellion of the daughter or rebellion of the wife. That's not what this is. But it could be the case that sin of the husband is identified. Here in verse 15, it is wrong of him to come to some later time after he's known about what she said and forbid her to keep the vow. In that case, he is held responsible by the Lord. No light thing, is it? Uh, It says he shall bear her iniquity. He cannot come to her later and say, I'm going to cancel what you have promised. Now, what these uh, 15 verses demonstrate is that with men and women, vows are to be taken seriously. And certain circumstances, whether a daughter is growing up or whether somebody gets married, somebody's promises can affect the lives of others. And that means Other people weigh in on what should be done now, whether this vow should be kept. Maybe it's been kept so far, but now we can render it null and void. Um, The Lord would not hold that against them. In verse 16, these are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. I want to insist that the husband and the wife would be performing these actions, pursuing wisdom and the fear of the Lord. It's in the context of Numbers where here's a people going into the land whose words before God are to be taken seriously. And that means the husband and father are to be pursuing wisdom. The daughter is to be taught wisdom. The wife is to exercise discretion and discernment so that when people talk about what's been vowed, it can be taken seriously. 
I want to give you some Old Testament um, information here from Deuteronomy. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 23, and um, I just want to read a few verses from this, but I think it further emphasizes what we're talking about tonight. Deuteronomy 23, 21. It says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you won't be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you've promised with your mouth. You know what I think this suggests for the life of Israel? It should not be often that they make vows to the Lord. This isn't like the customary practice of how their relationship to the Lord should work. Consisting of all these vows. Instead, we're warned here about the seriousness of coming before the Lord to make some sort of vow or promise, which may be in a time of distress, someone means well, oh, I vow to do this, I promise Lord this, and, and then that promise is made, but maybe not followed up on, maybe not taken seriously. The vow is delayed in its fulfillment. Well, Ecclesiastes would warn us here, and this is in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. And in verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And don't say to the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You can imagine somebody making a vow and maybe they pledged money. Lord, I promise that uh, during 2023, I'm going to give this particular amount of money to ministries in the local church. This is my vow. And in the Old Testament Israelite community, you would communicate this to the Levites. And you would be held accountable. So let's imagine some Israelite vows to bring so much of the harvest or so much of their income. And they're going to vow it for the work of the tabernacle. And when the messenger comes by, the person says, oh, oh, you know, you know, now that I've had, you know, I've had uh, longer to think about this. And I realize, you know, I kind of spoke too soon and uh, it was really a mistake. And so, you know, don't hold me to that. And, you know, I have my fingers crossed or uh, you have you have instead the very clear warning in Ecclesiastes 5. Don't be flippant with promises. Take your vows so seriously that if you were to make a vow to the Lord, you will make good on your words. This suggests to me that in the Old Testament, the life of the Israelites was not to be filled with vow making. It wasn't like, okay, it's a new day. What can I vow today? It's Monday. It's two, you know, what will Tuesday's vow look like? Instead, they should operate in such a way where they don't have to swear constant oaths and make constant promises for their character and the fear of the Lord to be on display. Instead, maybe more like what Jesus says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount is the instruction to heed for the normal Christian life. Jesus says in Matthew 5.37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Now, I don't think this means... That someone who is in the new covenant, here we are, the church of Jesus Christ. I don't think it means we can't make promises or vows before the Lord. 
I think it means, though, the same thing in the Old Testament pattern of life. It ought not to be often. It ought not to be something that we are rashly, impetuously making. Instead, we ought to seek to trust the Lord, walk with the Lord, and with our words be trustworthy so that it doesn't have to be filled with oath-making and promise-keeping because we've used the name of the Lord in this way. We should be warned about breaking the third commandment, that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know what chapter 30 is trying to get these people to do? Not go into the land and take the name of the Lord their God in vain. That they will be people who use wisdom, discretion, discernment. Think about their promises for their lives and how it implicates the others in their life. And even recognize reasonable scenarios where a vow can be nullified without any indignation from the Lord. But in the end... To have developed a kind of character and fear before God where they are people of their word because they take the name of the Lord seriously. And they know everything I say, I say before God. And therefore, let my yes be yes, my no be no, that I will be known as someone whose words honor the Lord. Let's pray together.